good to be here again. It's been a busy week. This is a busy time of year, but it's good to come and just uh, be in the presence of God with His people and worship. I really, I really just look forward to this every week. Love you guys. Love this church family, um, and just love uh, what's what God's been doing here. So I hope you're excited too. Um, this is really cool. I want to read a, a thank you note from Nate McCoy. He needed to raise a thousand dollars to go on his trip to the Dominican Republic, and just from Cornerstone alone. Almost $850. Give yourselves a hand. That is awesome. Give God a hand because that is just so cool. So I'm going to read this uh, from Nate. It says, Dear Cornerstone Community Church, I want to thank you uh, for your generous support and giving. I am always blown away by the generosity of this church and God's people. I am so blessed to have you in my life. Thank you for teaming with our group financially, but also in prayer. Thank you again for your support. I look forward to coming home to share with you what God does through us in the Dominican Republic, Nate. And, and we are really excited, Nate, just to, just can't wait. I can't wait for you to go, but I can't wait for you to come back and just to hear uh, what, what God does there. We're excited for you too. So um, I'm going to read, read from Psalm 47 this morning just to, uh, just to get our hearts primed for worship. Um, and then we're going to sing a song and the offering's going to come around. But just listen to this. Words will be on the screen. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared. A great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us. The pride of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King. Sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather, and the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. All God's people said? Amen. Amen. All right, why don't you guys stand up. We're going to sing a song uh, that just talks about the glorious day that living Jesus loved us, dying he saved us. Uh, just love, love this song. You've probably heard it on the radio, but the offering is going to come around as we sing this song. Let's just continue in worship together. Father, may we spur one another on toward love and good deeds by our fellowship, by our worship of you. Father, forgive us when we complicate the gospel. Father, forgive us when we put idols in the way of worshiping the only one who is worthy of being worshipped. Father, as the song we just sang says, living, you loved us. Dying, you saved us. Buried, you carried our sins far away. Freely, you justified forever. And one day, you're coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, glorious day. Father, we don't want to take Your Word lightly. We don't want to take You lightly. Lord, we don't just want to skim over parts of Scripture. We don't just want to skim over Your Word. But Father, we want it to penetrate our bones. Lord, we want it to penetrate our soul. We want it to penetrate. We want Your Spirit to be alive and active in our hearts. So Father, as we... Look at Your Word this morning. 
would you come have your will in our lives? Would everything that's not according to your good pleasure, according to your will, be tossed aside? And would our hearts be in tune with you at this very moment as we open your word? In your son's name, amen. Well, I want to say thank you for all of you that are here this morning. I know the the time change can throw some people off. This was actually supposed to be Kyle's week this morning, but I, I asked him if he would switch with me, and he doesn't understand why. The, the real motivation was because if the message doesn't go well this morning, at least I have an excuse, that one less hour of sleep. So I'll know that if people are yawning out there, then I'll know that it's not really me, but it's more the, uh, the time change. So I, I was given uh, this great opportunity to have less pressure, less stress on me this week. But I want to... I wanna, say how excited and stoked I am to kick off this series in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is a phenomenal book. It's a book that I know many of you have probably taken non-believers to, turned them to. Uh, it's probably many of you have passed out Gospel of John testimonies or tracts, if you will, and, and passed those out to people. The book of John is, is, there's enough in the book of John for us to meditate on for the rest of of our lives. If it was the only book in the New Testament we had, the book of John would be enough. And before we dive in, I, I want to I thank the leadership team of, of Cornerstone for the sermon series that they've put together over the last couple of months. My, my family's only been here since the end of June, but when I think about what topics we've discussed, when I think about training for godliness, when I think about Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, when I think about the modern family series that we've just gone through, my life has been changed. I'm not the same person after hearing what God is, is doing in the lives of, of the speakers, what God is doing through his word, what God is doing through Cornerstone. So when the leaders of the church came together and decided that the Gospel of John should be a study that we should look at, I say amen. I say amen. Let's, let's dwell here, let's camp here, and let's go deeper in this Gospel it's just an amazing opportunity, so I just want to say thank you for, for giving me that, that, this opportunity. In your outlines, if you take notes, you're probably not going to be able to follow along and write down everything that I say. I'm going to give the PowerPoint to Nick. If anybody wants it afterwards, you can just get in contact with Nick, or maybe he'll send it out by email or anything like that. But what I want to look at today are just four different things. One being the context of John's gospel. Who is John? Who is this, this writer? Why should we trust what he says is valid? I want to look at some criticisms today toward Christianity, those that accept, uh, d decide not to accept Jesus as the Son of God and why they would do such a thing. But then I want to turn to how we can have confidence in Christ. Why are his words valid? Why the Gospel of John? I mean, there were other books that were not included in the Bible. There were other writings and teachings that were not included in the Bible. But John's Gospel was. And then I want to leave us this day with a challenge. What do we do with this book? What do we do with this book? How should this book change our life? If these truly are the words of God, and this is the only book, the Bible, that is alive, is living, and is active, then we should be changed as we read it. We should be changed as we walk through this sermon series but I have a great challenge for us that I want to leave us with. One question that I was faced with when I was a newer believer, 
and, I, and it struck me, was this. If the evidence was found to be contrary to what you believe, would or could you reject your beliefs? And rhetorically, just think about that for a moment. If the evidence was found to be contrary to what you believe, would or could you reject your beliefs? And I didn't like that question at first. I was like, well, no, I'm going to always believe Jesus. I'm going to always believe Christ. Even if it was proved not, I, then I thought more about it. You know what? At one point in my life, I wasn't in Christ. At one point in my life, I changed my belief system to go in line with God's will. And so I had to admit then, okay, you know what? How I was living before Christ, I held to one system of beliefs. I rejected those systems of belief to put my faith in Jesus Christ. And there must have been a reason why I did that. Christians need to be open to knowing what they believe and why they believe it and have confidence in the things that we, in fact, do believe. Well, when you look at the evidence for Jesus Christ and his existence, Dr. Simon Greenleaf was a Harvard University professor of law back in the 1800s, and he said this, according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. Now, I know this isn't modern-day Harvard University, a godless, atheistically-driven institution, but even these law professors following the evidence, sniffing out the evidence where it leads us, said that there is more reliable evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about anything in history. Wow. And again, this was 150, 200 years ago that people were still purporting that this is in fact true. Well, in our lives and a lot of the decisions that we make, we don't always operate with 100% certainty with the decisions that, that we make. When you came to Christ, you didn't know everything there was to know about God and his love. But there was a conviction in your heart that tugged you, that tugged on you. We talk about sometimes that God-sized hole that's in your heart, and until you know him, nothing can replace that. But when you decided to give your life over to Christ, when you made that commitment, when you made that decision to respond positively or favorably to the gospel, you didn't know everything there was to know about God. Andy Stanley calls this the uncertainty quotient. Nobody is ever going to know everything about who God is. But is there enough evidence? Is there enough evidence to confirm that God does exist, that he's active in people's lives, that he wants to see lives changed, and that you can in fact know him more than just a cursory passing about him? And the answer to that is yes. However, when you look at modern day science, we're supposed to follow the evidence. We're supposed to sniff out the evidence. But very rarely, very rarely will modern day science actually sniff out the evidence if it leads to anything other than natural causes or natural reality. And that's unfortunate. Well, if you have your scriptures, the first uh, message to kick off the series is John 20, verse 31. We're going to go all the way to the second to last chapter of the book of John to kick off the series. But I think you'll understand why as we walk through the message. 
In John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes this. And this is amazing. He says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If you're sitting here today and you don't know Jesus, I'm going to challenge you in your unbelief to follow what John wrote. One more time, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. If you were to flip over, and you don't have to right now, but if you were to flip over to John 21, you would also see that there were more things that Jesus did that were not written down and that the whole world couldn't even contain all of what he had done in his ministry. And that is an amazing thing. But John specifically says this. These things that I've written down here, these are written so that you may believe so whether or not the book of John was written to the Jewish community or whether or not it was written to Gentiles, we certainly know this. It was extremely evangelistic by nature. And that's why I think a lot of people pass out the book of John to people who are struggling. Just a couple weeks ago, I was up in the Twin Cities and there was a, our waitress, an Asian gal, a non-believer. I'm not very spiritual, she said. We turned her to the Gospel of John. Why did we do that? Why did we do that? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. There's evangelistic currents all throughout the Gospel of John. He wrote these things. What John has written, he's written because he wants people to believe. Now, the word in Greek can be, tra can be translated so that non-believers may come to know him, or it could be to encourage you, those that already believe. That's why if it's written to believers then it's kind of encouraging them in the, in the new faith that they have. Part of it is for non-believers, if they don't believe, that they would grow or that they would come to understand that these things are true. So when I found that, that this passage was the one I was going to be speaking on, I went and talked to my wife and I said, Honey, John specifically said this, that these things are written so that you may believe. So I said, Honey, what we're going to do is we're going to read through the book of John together. We're not done yet. We're only 10 chapters in. But I said, we're going to read through the book of John together, and we're going to capture what John is saying here, and we're going to pull it out from the text and see, can we believe that Jesus is the Christ by the things that John has said? And yes, I follow Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But if John said that these things are written so that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God, then it ought to, it ought to spring forth that in the text, it's going to give you ample evidence that Jesus is, in fact, who he says that he is. And I will tell you this much. That's one challenge I have for you because that has, in the last couple of days, Sarah and I have been reading through this, our mind has been blown. The ignorance of some of the pharisaical leaders of the day, the religious leaders of the day, uh, the open response to some people to the gospel, the the way that John prepared the way for Jesus and didn't want people to follow him, but wanted him to follow Jesus Christ, and then later on in the book seeing that these people are actually following Jesus Christ, kind of putting the dots together and saying, huh, you know, this Jesus fella is doing the things that John the Baptist said that he would be doing. Just mind-boggling. It was going forth. 
People saw it. People knew. There was evidence inside of the Gospel of John for us to believe that it is in fact true. Well, the context. It was not written by John the Baptist. Okay, for, the, for those of us that uh, don't always get it right. I thought when I first got saved, I thought that King Saul was Paul of the New Testament. So I, I didn't know I was going around telling people that. It was not written by John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist was one who came to prepare the way for the Lord. This John the Baptist fella was the one who prepared the way for Christ. Uh, he was also the one whose head was served on a platter before King Herod because his daughter danced and Herodias' wife wanted John's head on a platter, didn't, didn't like John's message. That's not who wrote this particular book. It was written by John, the son of Zebedee, whose brother's name was James. He was a, a Jew, by, by heritage. He was a fisherman by trade when he was called by Christ. Look at what we find about who he was. He was the one whom Jesus loved in John 13, 23. The one whom Jesus loved. And sometimes it was just written that way. The disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, he was called to take care of Jesus' mother at the end of John when, when Jesus was uh, on the cross. He said, and there was Jesus' mother, and there was the disciple whom Jesus loved, and he was called upon to take care of his mother. Some say that there might be a relationship there, that a, relation, uh, a bloodline and whatnot, but still, Jesus himself said, John, you take care of my mother. We know that he was the author of five books in the New Testament, the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. There's usually not much historical dispute over that, although there's some contemporary. I, I, don't, I don't buy that. I, I think that John was definitely the author of those books. He was exiled to Patmos is where he ended up writing the book of Revelation, seeing the, the vision from, uh, from God. Ended up dying in Ephesus, most likely, and reportedly, anyway, the only apostle to die of natural causes which would make sense then that his, his gospel was written a little bit later than the other three synoptic gospels because he lived a much longer life. He was not killed in the same fashion as the others, probably somewhere either at the end of the first century or the beginning of the second century is when, when John would have passed away, but he had a zeal and a heart for evangelizing the gospel. So why the gospel of John? Well, some of you may know Bill McDonald. He he has a believer's Bible commentary, but he said this about the Gospel of John. If, it, if this were the only book in the New Testament, it would still afford enough meat and milk of the word for a lifetime of study and meditation. I trust Bill McDonald. I, I love his commentaries and the way that he makes it accessible for, for believers to understand. And wouldn't you agree? For those of you that have spent some time reading through the Gospel of John, wouldn't you agree that the Gospel of John has enough meat and milk in it to sustain a believer if it happened to only be the only pieces of Scripture that we had left. Charles Erdman, who was at Princeton University, um, he was a former seminary professor, said this, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, has induced more persons to follow Christ. It has inspired more believers to loyal service. It has presented to scholars more difficult problems than any other book that could be named. Wow. Don't you want to study a book that induces people 
to follow Jesus Christ? Don't you want to study a book that's inspired people to serve him and to live out what he wants us to do? Don't you want to study a book that presents, some people may not want to do this third one, but I want to study a book that presents challenges, that presents problems, that presents us to have to use our mind and connect with his spirit to understand what he is truly trying to convey. And it's not that Jesus spoke difficultly. It's not that the things that he taught were difficult to follow. But if your heart's not in the right place, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. In fact, the other night we were looking at one, the parable uh, or the story that Jesus was telling about the shepherd and the sheep gate and all this. Very easy picture. Very easy picture. You know, the, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. They want to go in the gate that the shepherd has prepared for them. And yet if you read that passage, the religious leaders that were standing there, it said they had trouble understanding this. I'm sitting here thinking, really? Were they so disconnected from understanding a very simple principle? A shepherd has sheep. The sheep follow the shepherd. The sheep go through the gate that the shepherd, they will only respond to the shepherd's voice. Am I wrong that this, this was an agricultural community, that this should have been very easily understood by these religious leaders? And yet they said, this was, this was tough. This was too tough of a teaching for them. And I'm sitting here thinking, you've got to be kidding me. They were just completely either inept of, of the agricultural lifestyle at the time, or they just chose not to believe. But in other words, Jesus didn't teach difficultly, and he left us with how to know him and to connect with him. Well, let's give some internal evidence, too. John was an eyewitness of the miracles performed in this book. I mean, yes, some would, some would discredit that and say, well, you know, he, he claims to have seen it, so we shouldn't trust his testimony. That's fine. I can live with that. But there are other Gospels that confirm exactly what, what Jesus said that he had done. He was with Christ at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, too. The moment when Jesus lit up and shone in the radiant glory of God was upon him, and Elijah and Moses came there. John was there. John saw that, which is interesting because it's the only miracle that Christ did to himself. And that's an interesting thing as well. Agony in the garden in, in Gethsemane before he's going to the cross. John and the other disciples were there. You know what I like about that passage in Matthew? What I like about that passage is, is it shows the human nature of man, right? Because Jesus went off to pray for about an hour, and what did the disciples do? They slept. They slept. They couldn't, even stay. they couldn't even stay awake for one hour when Jesus was praying. So he comes back and they're sleeping. He's like, stay awake, pr you know, pray. But John was there. John was at the crucifixion with Jesus Christ. He was actually asked to take care of his mother at the crucifixion of Christ. He not only was there, but he had a, he had, he had a part that he was supposed to do after the crucifixion took place. He was with Peter once the Holy Spirit descended, once Christ ascended and the Holy Spirit, those were filled at Pentecost. He went out with Peter and was an instrumental part of curing a man with leprosy in the name of Jesus Christ. The book was still written in the first century. Within 70 years or so, I would probably date the book around the in the 80s, 
AD 80s when the time that it was probably completed. But it was written still in the first century and a very evangelistic gospel in that. Even the early church leaders, Clements, Irenaeus, Jerome, second, third century, even they dubbed it a spiritual gospel, an evangelistic gospel to get the message of salvation out. So when you think about why we choose the book of John to take people to, there is strong reason to take people to the book of John. Well, there's a lot of evidence. Remember, you follow the evidence, you sniff the evidence, you, you look at the evidence. Well, I want to I talk to you or ha read to you this gentleman, Richard Carrier. Uh, meant, some of you may have heard that name, I'm not sure. This gentleman wrote a book called Sense and Goodness Without God. Uh, he's a Ph.D. professor of history at the uh, University of California, Berkeley. Um, he believed that, uh, he, 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 here's what he says now, today, here's what he believes, just so you know the context of who, who's sharing this. He says, quote, it is very probable that Jesus Christ never even existed as a historical person. So you got to love, you got to love people when you know their background and you know their bent where they're writing from. Somebody with a PhD in history who doesn't even believe now, remember, he doesn't even believe it's highly prob probable that Jesus Christ never even existed in human flesh. And remember, he's writing this 2,000 years after Christ was crucified. But listen to what he says, this 21st century confusion that when we don't follow the evidence and we let our personal bias get in the way, we have a hard time believing. Here's what he says. Besides all that, another reason I am not a Christian is the sheer lack of evidence. Remember, John said, I write these things so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. Right from the start, Christians can offer no evidence for their most important claim, that faith in Jesus Christ procures eternal life. Christians can't point to a single proven case of this prediction coming true. They cannot show a single believer in Jesus actually enjoying eternal life, nor can they demonstrate the probability of such a fortunate outcome arising from any choice we make today. Even if they could prove God exists and created the universe, it still would not follow that belief in Jesus saves us. Listen to this next sentence. This completely contradicts, I think, everything he says. Even if they could prove Jesus performed miracles, claimed to speak for God, and rose from the dead, it still would not follow that belief in Jesus saves us. Really, if that's not enough, then what is enough? Even, so he's saying that even if Christians could prove that Jesus rose from the dead, because a lot of people raise from the dead. I mean, it happens all the time. even if he could raise from the dead, or even if you could prove that God existed, or even if you could prove that these miracles existed, it's still not enough to say that Jesus offers eternal life. You've got to absolutely be kidding me. Therefore, such a claim must, okay, you've got to understand, must, therefore, such a claim must itself be, be proven. Christians have yet to do that. We simply have no evidence that any believer ever has or ever will enjoy eternal life, or even that any unbeliever won't. And most Christians agree, 
As many a good Christian will tell you, only God knows who will receive his grace. So the Christian cannot claim to know whether it's true that faith in Christ procures eternal life. They have to admit there is no guarantee a believer will be saved or that an unbeliever won't. God will do whatever he wants, and no one really knows what that is. Isn't it funny how he makes God this God of confusion, this God of chaos? You know, if God is just, does God just arbitrarily act? You know, it's like the people who say, why doesn't God just make a rock so big that he can't move it? You know, that's illogical. That doesn't even make sense. Why doesn't two plus two equal five? Because God is a God of order. God ordains things to happen. He is very meticulous in what he does. At best, they propose, propose that faith in Christ will up your chances, but they have no evidence of even that. So this is the uh, California Berkeley PhD professor of history. Boy, isn't it great what our country's coming to? You know, history professors now that come out of school believing that Jesus probably never even existed. You know, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump until universities won't believe that the Holocaust even existed, even if the evidence sniffs you in that direction. Well, I like what Timothy Keller says. I love Timothy Keller. I think you would, I think, I know his words are not living and active like the scriptures, but I think Timothy Keller is a great man of reason for the 21st century. I love what he says. He says, it's not enough to simply believe that Jesus did not rise from the dead. So he's taking it from the other side. You must, I like his you must better than Richard Carrier's you must. You must come up with a historically feasible alternate explanation for the birth of the church. Because remember, the church began in the first century. The church began when Jesus was actually alive. The church began with people who didn't believe that Jesus was God. Right? Didn't even Jesus' own brother James deny that he was God and then later became a major leader in the church post-resurrection? You have to provide some other plausible account for how things began. So let's I just want to take some external then. This is confidence that we have in Christ. Well, here's a Roman historian from 116 AD, not 2013, who wrote this. Nero fastened the guild and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by their populace. Christus, for whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. Well, either this guy didn't know what he was talking about at all, or he was just making it up. Tacitus was not a Christian. Tacitus was not a believer in Jesus Christ. He was a Roman historian. And he even says that there was a gentleman named Christ. Marbar Serapian, Stoic philosopher, still in the first century, not a follower of Jesus Christ. He wrote, what advantage did the Jews gain from executing their wise king? Well, he believed that the Jews had some wise king. Now, he didn't say God because he didn't believe that Jesus was God. But he also said, what advantage did they have from executing their wise king? Well, he believed that some wise king existed of the Jews that they executed. Flavius Josephus, interesting character, was a Jew by birth, recanted his Jewish heritage and, joined, uh, the, and gained Roman citizenship, wrote this, brought before them the brother of Jesus who was called Christ, whose name was James. This was written in the first century as well. 
This was a person who didn't believe that Jesus was God, who left his Jewish heritage, and yet, for some reason, he believed that there was a real person named James, and he believed that there was a real person named Jesus. Now, others called him Christ, and he didn't believe it, but still, it doesn't matter. What's also kind of cool in here is that it shows that James did have a change of heart, right? They brought in this James fella to persecute him because of his faith in Jesus Christ. I guess we must deny that Jesus existed. I guess we must deny that John's gospel is true. Are you kidding me? Are you going to believe a 21st century historian who was nowhere near the time of Christ? Or are you going to believe the evidence that's right there? Just a couple of internal evidences then. In 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul wrote this. He said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Well, you got to remember who Paul was. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. Paul hated Christians. It's written in the Bible that Paul consented to the death of Christians, whether he himself actually murdered them or whether he signed decrees or documents that gave authority for people to kill Christians. Paul received Christ. And he says, I'm passing on. I am passing on what I received as of first importance. Who did Jesus appear to after he rose from the dead? Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. It's interesting, the Bible talks about he appeared to women first. I mean, that may not sound like a big deal today, but in that day, that was a huge deal. And remember, we need to look at the evidence and we need to put it in this healthy a perspective as we possibly can. To Cleopas and another disciple, excuse me, on the road to Emmaus, Jesus appeared to them after he, he rose. To 11 disciples and then to others in Luke 24, 33 through 49. To the 10 apostles and others with Thomas absent, and then later Thomas came and then Thomas believed, but he didn't see like the other apostles saw. To seven apostles in John 21. To the disciples in Matthew 28. With the apostles at the Mount of Olives before his ascension, he was with them. And then the kicker, in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, it says he appeared to over 500 at one time. And Corinthians was written a lot earlier in the book of John. And then it says, if you read the text, it says, and many of them are still alive. Remember, Timothy Keller just said to us moments ago, or we read a moment ago, that if it isn't true, you have to find some alternate beginning of the church. You have to, if it's not true. Very interesting. In 1 Corinthians, Paul notes, he appeared to over 500 at one time, and many of them are still alive. What he's really saying is, go ask them if you don't believe. And by the way, just, uh, just an apologetics aside here, where's all the evidence against Jesus living? Where's all the evidence that says, you know, during that first century would have been a perfect time for there to be lots of literature, literature that said, this is just hogwash, this is just baloney, this is just made up, this was just a small group who was trying to have their way, this really didn't happen, no. In fact, in history, you don't hear anybody denying that a man named Jesus existed, I think, until about the 19th century. You don't hear any respectable scholars mention that this Jesus didn't exist until then. And you got to wonder, how in the world can you believe that this man didn't exist? Well, in 1 Corinthians 15, then, if it's not true, and this is, where, this is where I challenge you to make sure that you understand what you believe. Paul wrote this, if it's not true, 
then we make God out to be a liar. And if it's not true, then we're to be pitied because we're denying ourselves pleasure. And if pleasure is all the purpose of life, hedonism is all the purpose of life, then what in the world are Christians doing denying themselves of all the pleasure that you could possibly have in this world? Woe is us. If, uh, if it's not true, then we're dead, or dead in our sins. And not only that, we, make God out to, we, make God, we are false witnesses to a God that's not real, to a God that's not true. Folks, when you embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have to be willing. And again, you don't know everything when you come to Jesus Christ. That's because God has to work in and through us. But when you come to know Christ, you have to understand that this, if this isn't true, then you're making God to be a liar. And I'm not saying that what you believed before would have, made, would have been real either, but all I'm saying is that if you believe this and it's not true, you make God out to be a liar. You're pitied. You're a false witness. and You're a liar. That's heavy. I like this uh, quote from a late Yale professor of history. This wasn't that long ago. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And I think Kyle did a great job a couple of weeks ago with a Larry King interview, I think with Larry King, where he said his belief or non-belief hinges if he could, if there was one question that Larry King could ask Jesus, it would be, did you really rise from the dead? Because that would be it. And that's kind of exactly what's being said here. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen how it is. Well, it does matter. Within five weeks, there were over 10,000 mostly Jews that were now following Christ and worshiping God, right? After Pentecost, Peter went out at one occasion, preached, 3,000 got saved. Another occasion, there's a couple thousand more getting saved. Yeah, I can, I can, I can truthfully, I can give folks the fact that when Jesus died and rose into heaven, there were probably only a couple hundred believers in Jesus Christ. I can, I can live with that. That's probably... You know, that may be true, but you can't deny that afterwards when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them, that thousands of people were being added to the numbers daily when they went out and preached Christ. It's also interesting that the followers of Jesus Christ were willing to die the most disgusting form of death possible. They had nothing to gain, right? I mean, these followers of Jesus Christ were fishermen. They were, you know, tax collectors. They, they were folks that were maybe not doing so well in the eyes of the Jewish law, but they were doing all right. They had nothing to gain to accept Christ and to follow him if they knew it was a lie. Nothing to gain. Why would you want to die crucified, possibly even upside down crucified, if it wasn't true? Are you kidding me? I love Pascal. He said this, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. When you want to examine the evidence, when you want to look at how these people historically died, I choose to follow the ones that get their throats cut for what they believe. My challenge to you as we, as we conclude, and I, and I, trust me, I am thrilled about this study. I cannot wait to dive in. I, I'm going to challenge you. If, if John wrote these things so that you may believe, well, don't dismiss it because you already believe. Read it from the point of view, then, that this may encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. But I want to challenge you, read ahead of the messages in the Gospel of John. I don't care if you're on a one-year Bible reading plan. I don't care if you've got your own strategy. Read ahead of what we're going to be talking about. I would just suggest, you know, a chapter or two of John, 
for the message. Even if you don't know what the next message is going to be, we're following pretty systematically through the book of John here. Read a couple of chapters ahead of time. And read it from the lens of, this has been written so that you can believe. Okay, how do I know that what's written? You know, it would be one thing if, if what was written in John was only Christ saying it himself. Like, there's a lot of scripture in John where Jesus says, my authority is valid because I came from the Father, and I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, but you guys are children of the devil, and you don't believe. So there's a lot of that where Jesus says, my testimony is valid. Well, I can understand how a non-believer is not going to want to hear that. Yeah, he says, my testimony is valid. That doesn't make sense. That's not fair. I could claim to be anybody as well. But that's not what most of John is all about. It's other people that you can go and talk to at the day. Now, we as Christians can gain a lot of insight from Jesus saying, my testimony is valid because I come from the Father, but we're on the other side. We know that it's true. Those folks didn't know it was true. But there's a lot of meat in the Gospel of John. Be ready to be amazed by the character and nature of who God is. I think you'll be blown away. I don't, some of you in here have probably read through the book of John over 50 times. If it's living and active, there's still truth to be learned from, from John. I think you're going to be able to see God anew through this study, knowing you can trust his word. You can trust the internal evidence. I think the evidence outside confirms that this is true. I mean, you're never going to have, remember, as Andy Stanley calls it, it's the uncertainty quotient. I mean, you're, we weren't there. I didn't see Jesus rise from the dead. I didn't see him go into heaven. But is there enough evidence to conclude that it's real? Is there enough evidence to conclude that it's most likely true? And let God work on your heart to confirm that, in fact, it is true. Well, I end with this. It'd be one thing if it was just John stating, hey, I've written these things so that you can believe in the name of the Son of God, and that believing you may have eternal life. That, that's one thing. That's great. That's one person who was an eyewitness saying the same thing. Now, Luke, I mean, obviously Luke's a little different. He wasn't really an eyewitness of Christ, but, I mean, he was very meticulous. He was, he was a, uh, you know, his, his words are, are in Scripture for, for a very good reason. But it's very interesting that in Luke, it's almost the exact same thing as John 20. 31. This is a different writer, a different author of the New Testament. And he says in verses 3 and 4, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and don't overlook that carefully investigated, Luke was a doctor. Luke would have been very meticulous in the way that he wrote and very detail-oriented. Look at, look at the way Luke writes. You'll see that he's very detail-oriented and documented uh, along those lines. But he says, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's the kicker. So that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. John wrote, so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. Luke gives us another picture of why he wrote, so that you may know with certainty things that have been taught. Let God, I'm putting this in 21st century terms, let God blow your mind away through this study. Be prepared to let God have his way in and through you in this study. These things are written for a reason. They were chosen specifically for a reason. So that you may believe. Faithful men 
in Christ's day passed on what they learned that was of first importance to make it known to the next generation. Praise God that they did. Praise God for their faithfulness. Praise God for their obedience. Praise God for sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the love that you've given us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we can't even imagine the agony, the pain, the torment, the torture. We can't even imagine offering our own son for the salvation of the world. Lord Romans, Paul told us in Romans that rarely will a good man, rarely will a man die for a good man or a righteous man. But while we were still your enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ, you died for us. It's true. Living, you loved us. Dying, you saved us. Buried, you carried our sins far away. Rising, you justified freely forever. One day you're coming, O glorious King, O glorious day. We just thank you and we love you. In your son's name. As we sing to our risen Lord, just take the opportunity to rest in his presence and come forward and take the bread which represents his body broken for us and the juice which represents his blood spilled out for us in the new covenant. If you know Christ, come and do that. If you don't, just pay attention to what we're doing here. We believe wholeheartedly in the evidence that Christ can save us from our sins. So let's worship him together. that are visiting today, I want to say thank you for coming to Cornerstone Community Church. We invite you to come back as we just embark on this journey through the, through the book of John. But remember, these things were written so that you may believe in the name of the Son of God, and that by believing, you will have eternal life. That's why we're here. That's what we want to be about. Go forth from this place and advance His name. Make His name famous as the scriptures say. Make his name famous to the community because of his great and unfailing love that he has for his creation. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I thank you for your great love that you have for us. I thank you that you are a redeeming God, a God of reconciliation, a God that is worthy of all praise and adoration. Father, may our lives reflect your glory. May we be strengthened to carry out what your word tells us that we may have endurance and patience, as Colossians says, as we are strengthened by your power. I just thank you for this meeting and this opportunity to gather with the body of Christ. In your son's name we pray, amen. Have a great week.